As we uh, approach chapter 9 here, I'll remind you first and second Chronicles. In the Hebrew, the title was Debere Hayamim, or Deber Hayamim, meaning the words concerning the days, that is the days of David, king of Judah and his posterity, all of the kings of Judah, right down the line. In fact, we know the genealogies that we've already looked at through chapter 8 and that we'll finish up in chapter 9. We know they begin with Adam and they extend even as far as 600 years beyond the life of David. How do we know that? Well, if you look at 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 24, I'll just point out to you a single name, the name Anani. It's the last name there given in the lineage of the family of David, the posterity of David. It's gone through all the kings, goes through uh, the kings who end up imprisoned in Babylon and continues on down his family line, even post-Babylon, to the last name given there, which is Anani. Actually, he's not the last listed relative of David. That would be Jesus. But in the Hebrew Scriptures, the last one listed there is Anani, and he was born somewhere between 425 and 400 B.C. So part of how we know the First and Second Chronicles were dated right around that time, 425 to 400, is that name is listed, and that name was a man born following the genealogy down the line. That was right around the time of his birth. It would fit right in the days of Ezra, who I've shared uh, Hebrew tradition upholds him as the, as the writer of the book, though the Holy Spirit is the actual author. So 1 Chronicles gives us the longest genealogy in all of Scripture. Nine chapters worth. And by the way, it's a lineage that is unparalleled in both literature and history. You won't find another like it. In all the genealogies and lineages and family trees listed, this one is the most complete, it's the longest, it is unparalleled. Last week we moved through eight of the nine chapters of this genealogy, covering that royal lineage of Judah, But before we finish up and move on out of chapter 9 tonight, there are a couple things I need to point out to you. One thing I I did not share last week. There is a glaring but intentional omission in this line. When you read through from chapters 1 to chapter 8, he begins with Adam. Remember the very first word out of 1 Chronicles, Adam. And then the writer walks us on through that. But there is an entire line of people completely omitted. He doesn't mention... In the least, there is no mention of the line of Cain. Now you can track that family line in Genesis chapter 4, but the writer of 1 Chronicles doesn't even touch it. Why not? Because it's the line of death. The line of Cain is the line of death. Cain's name means gotten. Gotten. But in naming him, Eve must have gotten the wrong idea. Why does she name him gotten? Well, it appears as though Eve thought Cain was God's promise to overcoming the curse. What are you talking about, Rick? You Bible students recall Genesis 3.15. God is cursing the serpent for tricking Eve and for leading Adam down that, that wrong path. And in the curse, He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And it's called by many scholars the first gospel. The first gospel, the proto-evangelicum. I will put enmity between your seed, speaking to Satan. Those who would follow your way, your line, and her seed. And it's the first gospel because it's the first mention of a miraculous birth. As I've shared many times, women don't have seeds, men do. But in this statement, God mentions this woman is going to have a seed. A woman at some point along the line is somehow going to be given a seed, not from a man. And that seed is going to bruise the head of the serpent, bash the head in, which is what Jesus did to Satan on the cross. But when Cain is born, Eve has the wrong idea. She thinks the promise of God has come. She gives birth to Cain and goes, Oh, this is it. I've gotten my answer. Cain, she names him. Gotten. Literally, and here, here's the verse, Genesis 4.1, said the man had relations with his wife Eve. She conceived and gave birth to Cain. Now we know that's not the proto-evangelicum because the seed came from Adam, not from Eve. So she gave birth to Cain and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Literally, here's how it reads in the Hebrew. Cana ish Yehovah. That's what she said when Cain was born. Cana ish Yehovah. Literally, I have gotten a man, the Lord. 
I've gotten a man. The Lord. From Eve's perspective, and I don't think we need to read much into it, it sounds as though she's saying, here's the miracle. I have gotten my answer, Cain. But Cain was not the answer, and it didn't take Eve long to figure that out. In fact, even before the murder of Cain's brother Abel by Cain, even before that happened, Eve had figured out the birth of a child is not the answer to the problems of the world, as many of you know. (laughs) Giving birth to a child, bringing a child into the world, doesn't necessarily make the world a better place. Oftentimes it makes the world a worse place, so bad that by the time Abel comes along, Eve says the following, Genesis 4.2, she again gave birth to his brother Abel. Abel means emptiness or vanity. Firstborn child, gotten. I've gotten my answer. But by the time the secondborn comes along, she says, <laughs> she could have named him Ben. As in been there, done that. <laughs> you know, emptiness, vanity, this is the sense that we get from Eve. And so, you know, Cain does kill Abel. And the hope of Eve is crushed. And Cain fled God and settled east of Eden in the place called Nod, which means wandering. The land of wandering, he went his own way, and it wasn't a good way to go. In fact, Jude, in his letter, writes the following. Jude, verse 10. These men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. The way of Cain is the way of death. It's the path of death. It's the line of death. How do you know that, Rick? Because that entire sinful line was wiped out in the flood. No one of the line of Cain survived beyond the flood. The line of Seth, however, did. We talked about that last week. Genesis chapter 5. Adam, all the way down to Noah. Adam had Seth. You continue down the line, you get that embedded picture or or statement of the Gospel right there, and it's, it's wonderful. The way of Seth was the way of life. The way of Cain was the way of death. So the Spirit completely omits the line of Cain from the chronicle lineage because it's the line of life and legitimacy that the Holy Spirit is concerned with. The line of legitimacy. And that's the thing that we're looking at here. And and the thing I I want to stir you up by way of reminder is, as Peter said, to think about this, that the line we're looking at as we go through 1 and 2 Chronicles is the line of legitimacy. It's what makes 1 and 2 Chronicles unique from 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Samuel. Because mixed in throughout there are all the different lines of the sons of, of, of Jacob, not just the line, the line of Judah that would lead us to Jesus. This is the line of legitimacy. I, I got something just the other day I thought was kind of cool. Wednesday, March 31st, 1982. The headline read, Viejo Runs by Capo Valley. Let me read this to you. Mission Viejo High School's boys' varsity track team showed Thursday it wasn't affected by a lengthy layoff. The Diablos, who have been idle since March 11th when they, uh, when they beat La Quinta in a rain-abbreviated meet, handed Capistrano Valley a 133 defeat last Thursday despite wet conditions. Coach Garuli's tracksters overwhelmed the Cougars in both teams' South Coast League opener. Mishimio High School was without the services of their star hurdler, Steve Kerho, who had been sidelined with back spasms, but they managed to hurt the Cougars in running events. You're all saying, Rick, what does this have to do with anything? Just stay with me. <laughs> the next line reads, Rick Crawford was a double winner in the 220 with 23.4 second run, and in the 440, 52.5 seconds. Thank you. <laughs> While Todd Clater captured the 880 in 2 minutes and 42 seconds, and Dwayne Gregory clocked a 42.2 to win the low hurdles. Mission Viejo's 440 relay team, the fact that I'm calling it the 440 dates me, you know that, it's in 400 now, but the 440 relay team of Roger Brown, Mike Enriquez, Gregory, and Rick Crawford took their event in 45 seconds, point, 45.4 seconds, while Mission Viejo's mile relay team won in 4 flat. I was on that team too. Now, if I spouted off all those names to you and those times and those results regarding a high school track meet happening some 27 years ago, you might accept it. However, there are a few of you who might look at me right now and shrug it off saying, no way Rick got around the track in less than a minute. (laughs) I've got the written proof. I have the article from the Saddleback Valley News that my dad sent me written down from that day, from that week, that month, 
I have it at home. It is actually in the Pastor Rick Memorial Library to be viewed viewed by future generations. (laughs) Did you realize that for all the pharisaical attacks on the nature and the ministry of Jesus that we studied in Matthew's Gospel, there's not a single attack on Jesus questioning His rightful claim to David's throne. Why? Because the proof is in the line. It was written down. All anyone, even in Jesus' day, had to do was go look at the article. Go pick up the newspaper. Literally, go to the temple registry and follow the line all the way from Judah straight down to Jesus. And not a Pharisee, Sadducee, or scribe was able to look at Jesus and say, You cannot be Messiah because you're not of the right lineage. No, He was of the right lineage. They had the temple registry to prove it. They had First Chronicles to prove that line coming all the way down. And so that's the one thing that nobody could dispute. You cannot dispute that I made it around that track in 52.4 seconds. Actually, I did it in 50.7 a few minutes later, but I don't have any proof of that. I'm just going to have to let that one go. But these genealogies were preserved. They were saved. Actually, when the people of Judah went into Babylonian captivity, somebody took those temple records with them maintained the scrolls, protected them. Because after the fact, when they came back, as we see in First Chronicles all the way through chapter 8, we follow this lineage down. They kept track of it. And in Jesus' day, as we've talked about, you could go right into the temple and look up the genealogy of anybody in Israel and follow their tribe and follow their line and know exactly where they came from. And we know for a fact Jesus came directly of the line of Judah through David the king, that he has the right to sit on that throne. Matthew goes on to record the legal title from Judah through David to Joseph to Jesus. And Luke records the blood title through Judah to David to Mary to Jesus. Now I share this again because to me it's one of the most significant things that is the backdrop of the book of 1 Chronicles is the legitimacy of Jesus Christ. The legitimacy of Yeshua HaMashiach to be just that, our Messiah and our King. And you know that after AD 70, once Jesus came along, God slammed shut the book. He closed the genealogy that no one ever again could even make a claim to the title of Messiah. Not legally, not by the legitimate line. They could not prove it. Only Jesus can. Isaiah 9, 7 tells us there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And I love this inter- interchange between Pilate and Jesus. In John eighteen thirty seven, Pilate said to him, So, you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say correctly, I am a king. For this I have been born. And for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. So the line of death is left out. The line of life through the legitimacy of our Lord Jesus Christ is made clear. And we conclude that line now as we come to chapter 9. Chapter 9 will immediately now take us beyond Babylonian captivity. Watch this, verse 1. So all Israel was enrolled by genealogies. And behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And Judah was carried away into exile to Babylon for their unfaithfulness. Now the first who lived in their possessions and their cities were Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the temple servants. Some of the sons of Judah, of the sons of Benjamin, and of the sons of Ephraim and Manasseh lived in Jerusalem. Uthai, the son of Amihud, the son of Omri, the son of Imri, the son of Bani, and the sons of Perez, the son of Judah. From the Shelanites were Isaiah, the firstborn, and his sons. From the sons of Zerah were Jewel and their relatives, 690 of them. From the sons of Benjamin were Salu, the son of Meshulam, the son of Hodaviah, the son of Hasanuah, and Ibniah, the son of Jehoram, and Elah, the son of Uzi, the son of Mikri, and Meshulam, the son of Shephatiah, the son of Reuel, and the son of Ibnijah, and all their relatives, according to their generations, 956. All these were heads of fathers' households according to their fathers' houses. This is after the Babylonian captivity. How do you know that, Rick? It's a post-exilic list. This is a nice kind of fancy way of saying after the exile. Of those who returned to Jerusalem. How do we know this? Look again at verse 1. It tells us, it draws a line in the sand of history saying, Judah was carried away into exile to Babylon for their unfaithfulness. 
So there the writer draws the line. Everything in the genealogy prior to that is prior to Babylonian captivity. But at this point, they're taken into captivity. Now he says in verse 2, the first who lived in their possessions in their cities were Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the temple, the servants. Now, another key here is that word first, or that phrase, the first who lived, in verse 2. In Hebrew, it's Rishon Yashab, which literally means the former inhabitants, or those who formerly lived now have come back. The first who formerly lived there now returned. Because this listing here is of the families who formerly lived in Jerusalem but have come back now from Babylonian captivity. Now that's interesting to know and just, you know, as you're studying scriptures, you can make a little line there and say, okay, here's before the captivity and here's after. But more important than that is something we need to understand as we look at this. It's an important truth to the Lord. And that is that the Lord views Israel and Judah as one people. As one covenant people. Now at this time, even as we study First and Second Chronicles, this is of the line of Judah. This is not of the line of Israel. Israel's dealt with First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. But Judah is the focus, and Judah is the line. And Judah was carried into Babylonian captivity. Where was Israel at that time? Do you remember what happened to them? They were in Assyrian captivity some 200 years before, 722 B.C. They get carried off into Assyria and dispersed and lost and messed up. And in fact, we see this, this interesting theory that's come along. I say interesting, it's interesting until you realize how bogus it really is. It's the idea of British Israelism flows right into this concept of replacement theology. What is that? That the ten northern tribes after Assyrian captivity were dispersed into the world and they all kind of headed over to the west and using the Hebrew word ish for man, they became the Brit-ish and the Dane-ish and the, what are some other, Swede-ish to which I say ridiculous. Okay, it, it's not a legitimate thing to claim. It, it makes no sense And what people try to say is that then they came on over to America and it's us. And we are the new Israel. And old Israel lost their shot. But we the church, we replace Israel. Gang, Israel may have divided into two kingdoms, south and north. But God never stopped looking at all His people as His people. Because they still all come from one line, the line of Jacob, of Isaac, of Abraham. It's still one people. 2 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 16 says, Those from all the tribes of Israel who set their hearts on seeking the Lord God of Israel followed the Levites to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. What does that say? That says there were a lot of people who were not living in the northern territories. Many Israelites. When the kingdoms divided Israel to the north, Judah to the south, there were many people from many different tribes living right there in the south, in Judah, in Jerusalem that were not carried off into Assyrian captivity at all. And we can go even forward further to Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, and listen to this. Jesus sent out the twelve after instructing them, saying, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He doesn't say Judah. He says Israel. Why? Because all Israel are God's covenant people. All twelve tribes are included in that covenant None are lost. God knows where every single one is. So going on, verse 10, from the priests were Jediah, Jehoiarib, Yakin, and Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Meshulam, the son of Zadok, the son of Marioth, the son of Ahitub, the chief officer of the house of God. And Adiah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Pashur, the son of Malkijah, and Maasai, the son of Adiel, the son of Yahazerah, the son of Meshulam, the son of Mishelamith, the son of Immer. Again, there's some great names listed here. If you're ever going to be naming a child, just go right to First Chronicles. And their relatives, heads of their father's household, 1,760 very able men for the work of the service of the house of God. Now, this is beginning to list the the priests and the Levites who came back in return. And you can follow the parallel passage for this in uh, Nehemiah chapter 11. It's not as complete as it is here in 1 Chronicles, but this is another way that we know now we're talking about after the Babylonian captivity because the same names are listed in Nehemiah, which is written after the captivity. Going on of the Levites were Shimeiah, verse 14, of Hashub, and the son of Azrikam, the son of Hashabiah, the sons of Merari, 
And Bakbakar. I really like that name. Bakbakar. Heresh and Galal and Metaniah, the son of Micah, the son of Zikri, the son of Asaph, and Obadiah, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Galal, the son of Yeduthun, and Berechiah, the son of Asa, the son of Elkanah, who lived in the villages of the, the Netophathites. Okay. <laughs> Continuing on from there, it begins to talk about the gatekeepers. Fact 17 through 27 talks all about the gatekeepers. We read this a couple of Sundays back, but there was Shalom and Akub and Talman and Ahiman, their relatives. Shalom, the chief, being stationed until now at the king's gate to the east. These were the gatekeepers for the camp of the sons of Levi. Let's just see if we can do this. Shalom, the son of Korah the son of Abiasaph, the son of Korah, and his relatives of his father's house, the Korahites, were over the work of the service, keepers of the thresholds of the tent. And their fathers had been over the camp of the Lord, keepers of the entrance. Phineas, and by the way, it says keepers of the tent. Remember, the temple is not yet built. They're in Jerusalem. The temple, the original temple had been destroyed. After they come back, the, the second temple had been built. So Phineas, verse 20, the son of Eleazar, was ruler over them previously. And the Lord was with him. Zechariah, the son of Meshelamiah, was gatekeeper of the entrance of the tent of meeting. All these who were chosen to be gatekeepers at the thresholds were 212. These were enrolled by genealogy in their villages whom David and Samuel the seer appointed in their office of trust. Now I want you to consider this. All these gatekeepers, there were 72 that were required weekly. 72 a week. They were, there were 24 guard stations there in Israel, three shifts each of these 24 guard, sh- guard uh, stations. So each gatekeeper served rush, roughly one week on, three weeks off. Not a bad job. I wouldn't mind that. You're on, you're on 24-7 for a solid week, but then they would be off three weeks, and then they would come back in and out like that. More responsibilities are listed now, dating back to the tabernacle and carried forward to the temple. It says, They and their sons had charge of the gates of the house of the Lord, verse 23. Even the house of the tent as guards. The gatekeepers were on the four sides, to the east, west, north, and south. Their relatives and their villages were to come in every seven days. There we are, one, one, once a week, from time to time to be with them. For the four chief gatekeepers who were Levites were in an office of trust and were over the chambers and over the treasuries in the house of God. They spent the night around the house of God because the watch was committed to them and they were in charge of opening it by morning, opening it morning by morning. I just think that's really cool. These guys spent the night surrounded, surrounding the house of God. Right there close. First one's in, first one's to open the door, last one's to leave. You know, and I see that from time to time in the fellowship. I see first ones here, last ones to leave. People who just can't get enough and want to hang around and they want me to preach for you know, several more hours. I love those people. And these guys had that, that really precious opportunity to be close to the house of the Lord, to be near what was going on. Now some of them had charged the utensils of service, verse 28, for they counted them when they brought them in and when they took them out. Some of them also were appointed over the furniture, over all the utensils of the sanctuary, and over the fine flour and the wine and the oil and the frankincense and the spices. Let me just ask a quick question. How many pieces of furniture were in the tabernacle or in the temple? Anybody know? Seven. Seven. Seven pieces of furniture. As you walk into the tabernacle, first thing you would see there is the bronze altar. That's one number one. Beyond that was what's called the bronze sea which was actually a huge wash basin that the priests would then wash themselves in, especially after uh, you know, doing the sacrifices on the bronze altar, but also ceremonially to be cleansed before they went into the more holy place. You go into the holy place, and on the left side, there was the lampstand with seven lamps, continually lit and continually burning. Straight in front of you, against the curtain that separated the holy from the most holy place, right there in front of you, was the altar of incense. And then to the right was the table of showbread where there were the loaves of bread placed out on the table on a daily basis as well. So you've got one, two, three, four, five pieces of furniture. Then you go in around past there into the holy place and you have piece number six, the Ark of the Covenant that was kept alone in that place once a year visited by the high priest. Some might say, okay, that's six. What's number seven? Listed separately, though it sat atop the Ark of the Covenant, was the mercy seat. The place where God said, I will come and I will meet you there. 
Now the only thing that's not listed here, and the, the Hebrew writer alludes to this, one piece of furniture that was not anywhere in that temple sanctuary, and that was a chair. Because the work of the priest was never done. They never sat down and rested. Man, when you were at work, you were at work. You were on your feet, working constantly, moving. The Hebrew writer says, after Jesus had done all that was required of him, he sat down at the right hand of God because the job was finally completed. The sacrifice was made. There was no necessity of another one. So these are the guys that are doing all these different things. It says they, they were appointed over the furniture. Uh, some over the fine flour and the wine and the oil and the frankincense and the spices. Verse 30. Some of the sons of the priests prepared the mixing of the spices. Mattatiah, one of the Levites, who was the firstborn of Shalom the Korahite, had the responsibility over the things which were baked in pans. Some of their relatives of the sons of the Kohathites were over the showbread to prepare it every Sabbath. Now, watch this, because we come to a more significant job than all the others listed, at least in my mind. Verse 33. Now these are the singers. Heads of fathers' households of the Levites who lived in the chambers of the temple free from other service, for they were engaged in their work day and night. The singers, the worship leaders, those who maintain the constant praise and worship of the Lord, their job was 24-7. They lived there. So important, such a high priority did David place on that job that these people did nothing else. All they did was worship the Lord. I think that's marvelous. There's something in David, something, I don't know if it was prophetic or insight he had to the Lord, but David is doing there in the temple or or called for around the tabernacle and prescribed later for the temple that David himself wouldn't even see. Prescribed for that there would be constant worship. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, it would never stop. The praise would continue. And when one person was winding down and needed a break, there was another singer who came in, picked up the next chorus, continued right on while that person went to rest. It was constant worship. This particular group of Levites, 100% full-time singers and worship leaders who did nothing else. I wonder if David knew that's what happened in heaven. I wonder if he was just mimicking that very thing. Revelation chapter 4 verse 8 tells us the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And I love this, when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever, forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down. So these guys are praying, and the second they hear that, the elders are down on their faces and before the one who sits on the throne, and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. It's almost as if you've got this round-robin worship going on. The four living creatures worship, and the elders go, cool, and they worship, and the creatures go, wonderful, and they worship, and it's this non-stop constancy of worship around the throne of God. Why? Because you can't be in the presence of God and not worship Him. It is just, people say, well, I don't want to worship for all eternity. I mean, after a while, wouldn't that get tiring? Couldn't we break for a barbecue and come back or something? You're not going to want to. You're going to be so compelled by the presence of the living God that you won't want to do another single thing. Nothing will bring greater joy or greater satisfaction. Now, this got me to thinking. This high priority of praise in the tabernacle and the temple. It got me to thinking about the priorities of the church. Now specifically, I was thinking about the bridge and what our priorities are and where our focus is and and, and what we do and what we're about. And I think about the church larger and, and I bring this up, I've brought it up before, but is our priority praise or is it programs? Is it the worship of God or is it the work of our hands? In far too many churches, it becomes a social organization that is all about maintaining all of its many programs. Whether the programs are effective or not, by the way, there are more dead horses in the church today than I care to count. Things we do because we've always done them and we've got to maintain them, so we've got to get someone guilt-tripped into working in this program or this ministry because we've always done it. We can't stop now. Why? Why not? I'll tell you one of the reasons why. And this after having been in a number of different church settings myself, in staff positions, one of the problems inherent 
in salaried staff positions in ministry, and I'm not against it, we have salaried staff here at the bridge, but there's a tendency to want to prove ourselves. Amen. I've got to justify my paycheck. So to justify my paycheck, I've got to make sure everyone in the church sees me busy. Sees me doing things. Introducing new programs. Keeping things rolling. I've got to make sure people see. And staff-driven churches tend to be work over worship. Style over substance. Flash over faith. Maybe you've been involved in one of those churches. You've attended one where you're there. And man, the, the, the presentation on Sunday morning is so fantastic. It's just eye-popping. You know, every Christmas you can't wait to go because you don't know what they're going to do. It's going to be something big. You know, the Easter service, wow, they have live animals on stage. I kid you not, live animals. I mean, you know, and every year these churches trying to outdo what they did the year before. I did it for years. I was a slave to that. This year's got to be better. This retreat has to surpass the last. And it was exhausting. And it misses the point. Over in 1 Chronicles 16, let me read this to you. It tells us they brought in the ark of God and they placed it beside, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. He distributed to everyone of Israel, both man and woman, to everyone, a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a raisin cake. And he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord, even to celebrate and thank and praise the Lord God of Israel. This is what we're just talking about. Appointed worship leaders. Asaph, the chief, and second to him, Zechariah, then Jael, and Shemirahmoth, and Jehael, and Mattathiah, and Eliab, and Benaiah, Obed-Edom, whose name you might recognize. The ark stayed at his house for a while, and he became an incredibly blessed man, so he had a lot to be thankful for. And Jael, with musical instruments, harps, lyres, I love this, and Asaph played loud-sounding cymbals. <laughs> i got to read that to Galen on Sunday. <laughs> Benaiah and Yahazel, the priest blew trumpets continually, note that word, continually before the Ark of the Covenant of God. This is what David got going here. And then on that day, David first assigned Asaph and his relatives to give thanks to the Lord. Listen to this psalm of thanksgiving. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call on His name. Make known His deeds among the people. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Speak of all His wonders. Glory in His holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the face of the Lord and seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His face, again the word, continually. Remember His wonderful deeds which He has done, His marvels and the judgments from His mouth. Oh, seed of Israel, His servants, sons of Jacob, His chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember His covenant forever, the word which He commanded to a thousand generations. The covenant which he made with Abraham is oath to Isaac. And he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. On down in verse 23. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations. His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods. An amazing priority but an absolutely clear priority of David was the priority of praise. The priority of praise. What is your priority? We've got to consider this. What is the priority of my life? What is the important thing? I look at the bridge and I think in our ministry here, what is my priority? Is praise at the top of the list? The worship of God. Guess what? Worship doesn't look like work. We come here on a Sunday morning and we sing for a while and we worship God and our hearts get into it. We begin to really find ourselves wrapped in the Spirit. But we're not doing anything. I mean, not with our hands. I mean, you know, Jim, occasionally you'll, you'll adjust sound. I guess that's a little bit of work. So, kudos. But it's not work, gang. It's praise. It's worship. That is what God has called us to. Not this striving after proving that I am a child of God because of what I've done. No, you're not. You're a child of God because of what He's done. Praise Him for that. 
Let us be a people of praise. Paul said in Romans 15.8, I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. He's talking given to the Jews. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy as it is written, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples praise Him. We're getting commands here to be a people of praise. Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And if you say, well, Rick, I can't sing. Great, make a joyful noise. You can do that. Clap your hands to the Lord. Beat on a cymbal if you've got to, but praise Him with all that you are. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Hebrews 2.12 tells us even Jesus promised to join in the fellowship in the congregation in worship. Check this out. For both He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father for which reason He is not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Jesus singing along with us. Well, who's he praising? Jesus. (laughs) He's worshiping God, and he is God, but he is so connected to us that he's part of the praise. You've heard the phrase that the Lord inhabits the praise of his people. I love that phrase. Revelation chapter 15, verse 2, John writes, I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps to God, and they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. And so I just want to submit to you that the praise of God is far more powerful a thing for a church to do than the plans and programs of men. May we always keep it simple and be about the worship and lifting up of Jesus Christ. Now, chapter 9 ends with a brief lineage of Saul down in verse 35 in Gibeon. Jael, the father of Gibeon, lived... And his wife's name was Maaka, and his firstborn son was Abdon, and Zur, Kish, Baal, Ner, Nadab, Gedor, Ahio, Zechariah, and Mikloth. Mikloth became father of Shimeam, and they also lived with their relatives in Jerusalem opposite their other relatives. Ner, verse 39, became the father of Kish, and Kish became the father of Saul, and Saul became the father of Jonathan, Malkishua, Abinadab, and Eshbaal, which is also Ishbosheth in another place. The son of Jonathan was Meribael, and Meribael became the father of Micah. Sons of Micah were Python, the snake of a guy, Melech, Taria. I just, you know, I just wonder if you're tracking, if you're really with me. Ahaz became the father, verse 42, of Jarrah, and Jarrah became the father of Alameth, Osmapheth, and Zimri. Zimri became the father of Matzah, who was the famous cheesemaker, the mozzarella, obviously came from his line. And Matzah became the father of Baniah and Rephiah, his son, Eliasa his son, Atzel his son. Atzel has six sons whose names were Azrakam, Bokharu, Ishmael, Shereriah, Obadiah, Hanan. These were the sons of Atzel. It's a quick and brief lineage compared to everything else. But the writer gives us of Saul because honestly Saul does begin as the first king of Israel. David As we've talked about, I believe God's choice for the first king. But the people clamored for a king a whole generation early. And so God said, all right, I'm going to give you the kind of king you're asking for, a king like those of the nations. And then we'll see how you feel about my choice for a king when I bring him along. So we have this abbreviated look now in chapter 10. At the very end of Israel's first failing, foolish king, Saul. One short chapter. It's not of Saul's life. It doesn't talk about how he became king. If you want to do that, go back to 1st, 2nd Samuel, track it through there. But here in Chronicles, one chapter is given to the end of the life of Saul. What a tragedy. When you read and study the story of Saul. It wasn't until I grew older that I realized that as a kid. I, would just, I just learned that he was the first king of Israel. So I thought, oh great, cool, Saul. No, not cool. 
Talk about a man with a messed up life. When it first started out, he was the guy you would think would be, had the it factor. You know, he was the man. To look at Saul was to look at someone with kingly attributes. Man, he was taller than anyone else in all Israel. Big guy, powerful, good looking, a real hero type. And not only was he physically grand, but at one time he was spirit filled. When the Lord drew him into becoming king, when he finally accepted that, the Holy Spirit filled Saul. This was an unusual thing. It's not like the church of today where the Spirit fills everybody who claims Jesus. In those days, it was not, the Spirit was not given. He did not fall upon every person in Israel, but only on select people, unique people, few people. And Saul was one of those. Spirit-filled. He prophesied. At the beginning of his reign, he prophesied to the point that people said, is Saul now among the prophets? It became a saying in Israel. Saul's among the prophets. Because they were so surprised that he had now become the spirit-filled man until he rebelled so much against the Lord. And his heart got turned so badly that the Lord said, I'm removing my spirit from you and I'm going to put it on another, the young shepherd boy David. Which goes to show you that you can be spirit-filled and very carnal. Don't let the fact that someone has had the baptism of the Holy Spirit Don't let the fact that someone walks or or seems to proclaim the powers of the Spirit, don't let that fool you because that doesn't mean that they're spiritual. We've seen it often. Many times, great Spirit-filled leaders in the church who fall horribly because of the carnality that's truly hidden beneath in their life. Well, how do I know if someone's really Spirit-filled? Well, you'll see the fruit. The fruit will accompany the gifts. It goes hand in hand. I've talked about that. I want to go back down that line. But the tragic thing about Saul is when God pulled His Spirit out of Saul, there was an empty place there that got filled very quickly by an evil, tormenting spirit. Such that Saul would, from that point on, live out a troubled life in psychotic anguish. That's how this man ultimately dies. On the battlefield, messed up, alone, void of the Spirit of God, well, here's how it ends. First Chronicles chapter 10, verse 1. The Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines closely pursued Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle became heavy against Saul, and the archers overtook him, and he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, otherwise these uncircumcised will come and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore, Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he likewise fell on his sword and died. Thus Saul died with his three sons, and all those of his house died together. When all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that he had Saw, saw that they had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead they forsook their cities and fled and the Philistines came and lived in them now you may recall from Second Samuel chapter 1 in fact if you'd like to quickly turn back there I want to show you something in Second Samuel chapter 1 we're told the rest of this story a young Amalekite saw this happen and he ran to David with news of Saul's demise. And thinking it would bring him favor, the Amalekite tells David, I killed him. He took credit for Saul's death. See, the Amalekite is thinking that David and Saul were enemies. Uh, they were certainly against each other. Saul was definitely against David. And so the Amalekite runs. And he tells David, look at David's response, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 14. David said to him, How is it you are not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? That's amazing to me. David had been anointed already. In fact, several years before by Samuel, he was anointed to be king of Israel. But David wouldn't take that throne, not until God removed Saul. David was no usurper of the throne. And he says, How how dare you do this? And David called one of the young men, verse 15, and said, Go cut him down. So he struck him and he died. And David said to him, Your blood is on your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now, did he? Did the Amalekite kill Saul? Well, 1 Chronicles tells us that Saul fell on his own sword. However, it's possible that when Saul fell on his own sword, he wasn't quite dead when the Amalekite saw him. And the Amalekite came to him and Saul said, run me through, kill me. And so the Amalekite did finish him off. That's, that's one possibility. 
But David was heartbroken when he heard the news, not just about Saul, but about his best friend, Jonathan, or, or Jonathan. David chanted with this lament, verse 17, over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Yashar. Your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. You could put that on Saul's gravestone. How the mighty have fallen. Because that's the picture of his life. A man who began with all the promise of potential that you could imagine. Mighty in works and deed and in the Spirit of God. How the mighty have fallen. Down in verse 25 it says, How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Yonatan is slain in your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother, Yonatan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love for me was more wonderful than the love of women. And by the way, that is a beautiful and honorable and valiant thing to say, one man about another. There's nothing gay about it. How the mighty have fallen, verse 27, and the weapons of war have perished. David was absolutely heartbroken about the death of Saul, related in 1 Chronicles chapter 10. Go back there. There on Mount Gilboa. Mount Gilboa guards the eastern side of a large valley in Israel that may sound familiar to you. It is the valley of Megiddo. Mount Gilboa looks out. You will see Mount Gilboa if you come with us to Israel. I know I sound like a, like a commercial every time I teach, but I, I'm just dying to go back myself, but I'm dying for you to see it and for you to be there. But you can look out the very first day we drive up Mount Carmel. When we get up there on an overlook and you will look out over the valley of Megiddo, you will be able to see Mount Gilboa across the valley. It's amazing, this very place where Saul and Jonathan met their final demise. It's a picturesque location, and we will picnic there next, Mark, at a beautiful place called Sakne. Sakne, where some people who you wouldn't believe were jumping from high places into these hot springs and just having a great time, but it's a beautiful place. It's also near where Gideon called his army. And where Gideon's army, whittled down by God to 300 men, defeated their enemies. But again, to look across at Mount Gilboa, it's, it's absolutely breathtaking, the place where the mighty were fallen. Verse 8. It came about the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent messengers around the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the house of their gods and fastened his head in the house of Dagon. Dagon, not a good god to follow. He was a half man, half fish, kind of a merman god. And for those who would follow him would discover that their faith was here here to Dagon tomorrow. So that's Dagon. The place where they fastened is... The eye roll. I got it. Good. Okay. The place where they fastened the body of Saul is today in Israel another, has another name, a, a title to it. It's Bet-Shan. Bet-Shan. Largest archaeological find in Israel. A massive city. It was one of the ten cities of the Decapolis in Jesus' time called Scythopolis. And you can actually see that there as well. Bet-Shan. And that's uh, detailed in 1 Samuel 31, verse 10. It's interesting here. To consider what happens next, verse 11. When all Jabesh-Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and took away the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons and brought them to Jabesh. And they buried their bones under the oak in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. Why did they do that? These guys were not even, not even Israelites. They're connected, connected to Saul. But why would they risk going out into the, the next day, going out and, and finding the body of Saul there at Bethshan and taking it off the wall and taking that along with the bodies of Jonathan and his other sons back to Jabesh Gilead? Why would they do that? They had a history. Forty years earlier, Jabesh Gilead was under threat by the Ammonites and by their ruler, a man by the name of uh, Nahash. And Saul, hearing their distress, gathered 330,000 Israelites, got them all together, and they marched all night long from from Gibeah, and they routed the Ammonites by noon the next day, drove them out completely. 1 Samuel chapter 11 tells the story. And gang, the men of Jabesh-Gilead never forgot it. 
from that point forward, they were behind Saul. And when they heard Saul had been killed, they determined to honor this man who had saved their city. Do we remember the rescue of our king? How often do you pause and think about the king who rescued you? Now, I mention that because the parallel to Jesus at the end of Saul's life between Saul and Jesus is fascinating. Saul, we know, marched all night long to save the men of Jabesh-Gilead. So did Jesus. Not to save the men of Jabesh-Gilead, but to save you and me. He marched all night long from Annas to Caiaphas to the Sanhedrin. He was marched then to Pilate, out to Herod, back to Pilate, to the Praetorium Guard, and then finally out to the cross. Jesus, like Saul, marched all night long. Saul's body was pinned to the wall there at Bethshan. Jesus' body was pinned to the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 telling us He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you were healed. Saul's bones remained intact for His burial there under the tree at Jabesh Gilead. Same with Jesus. John 19.36 tells us these things came to pass to fulfill the Scripture. Not a bone of Him shall be broken. And so though He was hung on the cross, none of Jesus' bones were broken And that, by the way, fulfills Scripture because in Exodus 12.46 we're told the Passover lamb must not have a broken bone. And so Jesus in His crucifixion, none of His bones were broken. He was brutalized beyond recognition, but His bones stayed intact, fulfilling the decree for the Passover lamb. So Saul's bones were buried under that tree. Jesus' bones were buried under a tree. What do you mean? John 19.41, in the place where He was crucified, there on the tree, the cross, there was a garden. And in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. The tomb of Jesus was on the side of the hill that the cross itself was on. It may or may not be the garden tomb in Jerusalem today. But there's awfully good evidence that it's either that tomb or it's very close by because it shares the same hill as Golgotha. And so Jesus' bones were buried under a tree as well, like Saul. Saul, you might say, I I don't like the comparison because Saul was such a sinful man. So was Jesus. Well, he was perfect until he went to the cross. But then the Scriptures tell us, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. One more interesting parallel. The king that Saul defeated, the king of the Ammonites, who was going after Jabesh-Gilead, his name was, as I mentioned before, Nahash. You know what Nahash means? Serpent. Saul defeated the serpent to save the men of Jabesh-Gilead in the same way Jesus did that for you and for me. In that Proto-Evangelicum we began with this evening, Genesis 3.15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, speaking the Lord to the serpent, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The men of Jabesh-Gilead took the time to honor and remember their king, and so must we. It goes into what we talked about before. The constancy, the continualness of our praise. Praising and worshiping Jesus for what He did and who He is. Well, the comparison of Jesus and Saul ends here. For our King died and rose again in glory. Saul died in shame and punishment. And unless I'm wrong about this, which I guess is possible, I doubt we'll be seeing Him in heaven. I could be wrong. I hope I am. Look at verse 13, 1 Chronicles 10. So Saul died for his trespass which he committed against the Lord, because of the word of the Lord which he did not keep, and also because he asked counsel of a medium making inquiry of it, and did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore he killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. The Amalekite was not responsible for the death of Saul, though he claimed to be. Saul was not responsible for his own death, though the Bible indicates he fell on his sword. His armor bearer didn't take his life. By his own admission, God killed Saul. We wouldn't have known that if not for the book of 1 Chronicles. Why would God do that? Well, for one thing, he has the right. 
When it comes to murder, we don't. What's the difference? Well, God can give life and take it away. And until we have the power to give life, we do not have the right to take it away. Not in terms of murder. The Word gives clear explanation as to why the Lord took Saul's life. Why God killed Saul. It's because he sought the wrong counsel. Oh, he was rebellious in heart, rebelling against the Lord, seeking to kill David on at least three different occasions that we study about in Scripture. But beyond that, he does the unthinkable. He consults a medium, a witch. He goes to find answers from a witch rather than from the Lord Himself. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Paul says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, or the propheteia in, in the Greek there. Propheteia meaning that which is prophetic from the Lord. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Well, Saul failed miserably in every one of these areas. He quenched the Spirit, so God removed the Spirit from him. He despised the prophets. He didn't examine everything carefully. He didn't hold fast to what was good. He held fast to the evil. He went to a spiritist, a witch, to seek counsel. Now I point this out because we live in a culture that takes a very careless, Disney-esque, Harry Potter-fied approach to witchcraft and to spirits and to mediums and palm readers and astrological signs which I hope none of you read but some pop open the newspaper and go ah, I see what my sign tells me I'm going to have happen today even to something as silly as cracking open a cookie and thinking that the fortune has some legitimacy to it who are we consulting who are we going to for truth and understanding the Lord said in Leviticus 19.31 to the Israelites, Do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 6, As for the person who turns to mediums and to spiritists to play the harlot after them, I will set my face against that person and I will cut him off. God is serious about this. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19. He says, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? Which is what Saul did. He went to a medium to try and get dead Samuel to come back and talk to him. Did Samuel actually come back and talk to him? Well, that's another study for another time. Look it up on the internet. We talk about that. Isaiah 8 verse 20 though says, To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, no light, no truth. Saul had the spirit of the living God. But Saul lost the spirit because he would not listen to the spirit. Is that possible for us? It must be. Because Paul warns us, don't quench the spirit. How do you quench the Spirit? By not listening. By saying things like, well, the Holy Spirit really ceased to function uh, after the last of the apostles. That's cessationism. It's, it's a very uh, held belief in the church today by, by some. Now Paul wrote in Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. I want to read you one last thing. Uh, Turn over to Acts chapter 2. We'll finish there tonight. Acts chapter 2. As you're turning, let me ask this question, and I, I beg you to consider this. Are we a people who seek the counsel of the Spirit of Christ above and over all other counsel? Do you find yourself going first to the Lord and saying, Lord, I need your help with this. I need your wisdom. Lord, I need your discernment. Or are you rushing off to other sources of counsel? And I'm not pointing a finger of judgment, but the Lord continues to call us back and call us back and call us back. Come to me, you who are weak and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Come to me. Come to my spirit. Again, Saul began with great potential, but ended with great failure because he sought the counsel of man and mediums rather than the spirit of God who had been given to him. The counsel of the Holy Spirit 
and the living Christ, this is who we must be willing to seek with all our hearts. And so Peter, on that day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 14, tells us Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose. And then fisherman Peter adds, for it's only the third hour of the day. It's only nine in the morning, so that's not even a possibility, you know, yet. And he says, verse 16, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And he begins to quote from Joel chapter 2, verse 28. It shall be in the last days, God says, I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit. And they shall prophesy. Now listen, right here, Peter is saying, this is what's happening. You are beginning to see now, Peter says, on that day of Pentecost, you're beginning to see the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Several hundred years earlier, that God was going to begin to just pour out His Spirit, not on just Saul, or David, or the next king, or the king after that, or this individual prophet or that, on all of my people. And Peter says, what's going on here? That's what you're seeing. This is the outpouring of the Spirit promised through the prophet Joel. But watch this. He says, verse 19, and they shall prophesy. He says, I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a division here you need to see. Verses 19, 20, and 21, which parallel Joel 2, 30-32. Have those things happened? Have we seen those things? I don't think so. Sun turned to darkness. Oh, you know, we've seen eclipses, but not as described here. The moon into blood, signs on the earth blow blood, fire, vapor of smoke. What's being talked about here is described in a much fuller way, Revelation 6 through 19. It's called the tribulation. And it has not happened yet. It is going to happen. What happens first? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It began with Peter and the Apostles. And I don't see any division, any line drawn heavily between verses 18 and 19 that says it stops for a season and then the day of the Lord comes. Peter says it's the beginning of the last days. The Holy Spirit's being poured out. You are seeing this. You are experiencing this. And so I ask you this question. Are we still living in the last days? Absolutely. If so, then let us walk by the Spirit. If we are living in the last days, and I'm not calling out for anything weird or bizarre to happen here tonight, what I'm saying is, the Lord says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. I'm going to put myself in that camp. (laughs) Young men. Your old men shall dream dreams. I'm not going to point at Joe or anybody else. (laughs) But he says, I'm going to pour forth of my Spirit. Gang, we should expect to see the Holy Spirit at work. Should we not? Not in weird ways. I'm not calling out strange fire. I'm not looking for bizarre things to happen. Les and I were praying this morning and talking about this and just saying, you know... Less saying from his experience, he'd been involved with, with more Pentecostal churches in the back that had a procedure for people receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they would have specific services given to the work of the Holy Spirit. And the problem with that is it sometimes ends up kind of contrived. And if you've been in any of those churches, you know from time to time you're looking at someone going, is she Spirit-filled or just weird? You know? Is he actually speaking a prophetic word of God or is he just drawing attention to himself? I can't tell. And by the way, the way that you can tell is God never contradicts himself so his spirit is never going to speak something in contradiction with his word. And the work of the Holy Spirit in and among us is not something to be feared. It's not something to be set up and 
and programmed into a church. Tuesday night is Holy Spirit night. Show up and you're going to get, you know, zinged. You're going to lose control and you're going to fall on the floor and you're going to writhe around. That's not what we're looking for. We are looking for our young men to have vision. Our old men to dream dreams. By the way, that I believe will confirm those visions. We are looking for people to prophesy. That is to encourage and exhort and comfort. That's what prophecy does. We are looking for a supernatural move of the Lord in these last days. What does that mean, Rick? What is that going to look like? I have no idea. I really don't know. But I can tell you this much. I'm asking the Lord to show us. And I'm praying that He, the way He works and the way He functions, will in truth and in solid biblical foundation pour out His Spirit on the Bridge Fellowship in a way we have yet to see. And I invite you to join me in praying about that and ask the Lord, what does this look like? Because as I told Les this morning, the thing that I'm looking for more than anything else is authenticity. I want to see the authentic move of God's Spirit. Not something made up by man. Not something that we're just playing at. But Him at work. Him moving among us. Don't you want to see that? Let's ask Him for it right now. Father, Your servant Paul said, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And Father, it is my prayer tonight that we not become like Saul, a man who had the Spirit but was stripped of Your Spirit. That we not be a people who start with great potential and promise but end in despair and self-pity. Father, I pray that this fellowship that You began five years ago would begin to experience a move of Your Spirit in ways that we haven't seen before. And in ways that we know are not strange and bizarre and freaky, but they are true and absolute and authentic. And it's You that every one of us can testify, God is here. And Holy Spirit, You are at work. Lord, I believe we'll see this when Jesus is exalted beyond all others. And when the gifts are manifested as we minister one to another, as people begin to come to You, lives touched evangelistically, as the fruit of the Spirit, that love and joy and peace and patience and the whole list is played out here in this fellowship. Oh, Lord, I just long for that and I pray for it to happen. I love the little bursts that we see here and there, but I just pray that we would be a, a people saturated by the Spirit of the living Christ and that Jesus, as we go through and experience this, it would bring a great move in Your kingdom of people to salvation. Not looking for the buzz, Father. We're looking for the blessing of saved lives. Lord, thank You for the study tonight. Thank You for Your words in 1 Chronicles 9 and 10. I pray now that You will apply them to our hearts by the power of Your Spirit that we would take them home, chew on them, pray through them. In Jesus' name, Amen.